Broadway theatre in the 1930s was largely about escapism, glamour, fun and entertainment. But the 10th of October 1935 saw the curtain going up on something much more substantial. George Gershwin's opera Porgy and Bess, after a few out-of-town tryouts, opened to the New York public at the Alvin Theatre. It told the story of how life was tough for a poor black community in the Deep South of how a poor street beggar struggles to save the woman he adores from the abuse of a violent lover and from the grip of the local drug dealer. It's a story created, a decade before, by Dubose Hayward as a novel which became a literary sensation. When he got hold of a copy, Gershwin stayed up all night reading it in a single sitting and knew he had to make it into the American opera he'd always wanted to write. The way the story combined intense drama with elements of humour and a strong sense of humanity made it irresistible for Gershwin. And individual numbers from the show have gone on to become classics in their own right, especially one of the best-loved jazz standards of all, Summertime. As a work of theatre, Porgy and Bess is powerful and effective. As a piece of music, Gershwin's score achieves the kind of symphonic sweep which meant that, in the classical world, at last he could be taken seriously. But the big problem with Porgy is that, while it's an opera about the black American experience, it was written by an all-white creative team. George Gershwin and his brother Ira, the co-librettist, were white, as was Dubose Hayward, although he was from Charleston, where the story is set. Were they exploiting black people in writing this work? That's maybe how it comes across today, although it should be said Ira Gershwin insisted that only black artists should be allowed to play the principal roles, something that's helped launch the careers of many opera singers. Not that staging the work at the great Metropolitan Opera in New York would be an option for many years. It had a colour bar which lasted until 1955 when Marian Anderson became the first African-American singer to appear there. And the first production of Porgy at the Met didn't take place till three decades after that, by which time the types of characters depicted in the opera were beginning to look fairly antiquated, which is kind of a problem, unless, like the great Grace Bumbry, who played Bess in that Met production, you decide that the opera is a piece of Americana, of American history, and interpret it accordingly. So perhaps in interpreting this fascinating but tricky piece, that is the way forward.
In reflecting on Porgy, it's interesting to look at it alongside an opera about the black experience that was actually written by a member of that community, Tremanisha by Scott Joplin. His is a name we most readily associate with his ragtime piano hits, two of which are coming up in the second half of tonight's programme. But like Gershwin, another piano entertainer, Joplin's sights were always set on something higher. There was a passionate, ambitious musical mind there, struggling to break free from the disadvantages people like him had to contend with. The son of a family of railway workers living in a town on the border between Texas and Arkansas. Joplin spent the last decade of his life trying to get Tremanisha off the ground, even upping sticks and moving to New York to find a publisher. In the end, he had to produce the vocal score himself, all 250 pages of it, and put on a showcase performance in 1915 at Harlem's Lincoln Theatre with no set or costumes, accompanying the singers himself at the piano. But if the idea was to get some backers interested in staging it properly, it wasn't to be. Clearly, it was fine for African-American musicians to write commercial music, but art forms such as opera were still a no-no. Joplin died in 1917, a few months short of his 50th birthday. If only he'd lived a few years longer, he would have witnessed the start of the Harlem Revolution, with black music and culture at last being taken seriously in America. Joplin's opera is set in a former slave community near Arkansas. A little girl who's been abandoned there has been brought up as a foundling. She takes her name, Trimanisha, from the tree she was discovered under. A white woman teaches her to read, but she's abducted by a local group of conjurers who use superstition to prey on the minds of the community there. Tremanisha is rescued, and instead of retribution, she asks for her kidnappers to be forgiven. The plantation community hail her as their leader and salute the choice of freedom and education over the old superstitious ways. They express their feelings in the opera's standout chorus, A Real Slow Drag. Scott Joplin's opera did eventually make it into wider cultural awareness. It's just a shame that he wasn't around to witness it.
Although another of tonight's composers, Duke Ellington, who was born in 1899, grew up in one of the most difficult eras for black people in America, his start in life was more comfortable than Joplin's. His mother came from a middle-class family, and his father, who worked as a butler, taught his son to be smart, charming and well-mannered, a lesson the Duke took to heart. He always had a glamorous showbiz side right from the very start of his career. As resident band leader at the Cotton Club in Harlem in the late 1920s, he was marketed as the king of jungle syncopation. But at the same time as playing up to that primitive African stereotype, Ellington made sure he was always immaculately turned out in white tie and tails. For him, music was always going to be more than just the succession of three-minute hit records he was turning out with his orchestra. Composing on a larger scale began in the early 30s with works like Creole Rhapsody of 1931 or Symphony in Black of 1932. Note the classical titles Rhapsody and Symphony there. In the 1940s came works like Harlem Airshaft, a sort of jazz tone poem, a jazz concerto called Sepia Panorama, and another jazz symphony, Black, Brown and Beige, about the African-American experience in America, written for his appearance at Carnegie Hall in January 1943, the first time an African-American bandleader had ever been invited to play there. The 1950s saw theatrical collaborations such as his Shakespearean suite Such Sweet Thunder, and then, in the 1960s, the opportunity arose for Duke Ellington to write a large-scale religious work for the recently completed Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. This was an era in which what you might call traditional religious music was changing radically. The Catholic Church was considering a new approach to the liturgy at the time. The Second Vatican Council brought in several reforms which opened out worship in a number of ways, including allowing Catholics to pray with people from other denominations and allowing languages other than just Latin to be used in services. Duke Ellington wasn't the only musician to bring jazz into a sacred setting. The pianist Mary Lou Williams had stopped playing jazz in the 1950s after she converted to Catholicism and devoted her time to helping people in need, but she returned to music to create sacred jazz, including a jazz mass in 1971. That same year, Leonard Bernstein, another of tonight's composers, unveiled a mass of his own, written for the opening of the Kennedy Centre in Washington, a massive work, which is as much to do with the crisis of faith and spiritual doubt in his own life as the celebration of Christian belief. For Bernstein, this was a deeply felt reflection on his own approach to religion. And for Duke Ellington, too, his first sacred concert of 1965 was a deeply personal work which he'd only arrived at after some inner soul-searching. Back in that Washington childhood, his mother used to take him to two church services every Sunday and sent him to Sunday school as well. By the time he reached his twenties, Ellington said he'd read the Bible cover to cover four times. Throughout his life, he always said grace before meals, and the only jewellery he ever wore was a gold cross on a chain around his neck. So this religious music that he began to write in the mid-sixties was much more than just another commission. This was the most important work he'd ever done. He wrote three sacred concerts in all, 
The two subsequent ones premiered in 1968 and 73. All three are certainly ambitious. Whether you think they work or not is a matter of taste, but you can't fault their honesty. And you also really have to admire the range of Duke Ellington's creativity. It would have been easy for him to stick to writing three-minute hits, but his creative urge drove him to create all-encompassing works which broke new ground. For him, jazz music had no borders, and this cathedral commission gave Ellington the permission to be free. You're listening to RTE Lyric Live 